I guess we can start, uh, go, go ahead and uh, kick off. Um, thanks for coming, everybody. My name is uh, Dennis McWilliams. I'm a partner at Sante Ventures. Uh, I want to welcome you to the start of uh, three panels that we've organized um, on the topic of general healthcare innovation. Um, you know, for us, this is kind of our, our first rodeo, as they say, at South by Southwest, and I'm excited to bring you guys what we think is some really interesting content this afternoon. Um, obviously, we've got a great panel to kick off and, and start with, and so um, you know, we'll get, a, get going with some questions and conversations. Um, reminder, there's a microphone in the middle of the room, so um, you know, after we kind of, kind of do our um, little thing up here, if there are questions, uh, feel free to m walk up to the mic, and, um, and we won't promise to answer every question, but we, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, we, we, we promise to have a great com conversation with that. So uh, maybe just a round of quick introductions. So again, Dennis McCoyum's partner at Sante Ventures. Um, most of my career has been on the entrepreneurship side um, and, and do healthcare investing um, around the world. And I live here in Austin, Texas. So. Kristen Berman, I'm a behavioral scientist. I think about decision making, why people do what they do, uh, and then try to intervene to help with that. Um, Debbie Burks worked a lot in global health, classical trained immunologist, but did infectious disease and internal medicine and have spent 25 years working overseas and one year working in the White House. Hi, Steve Hahn. Um, I started my career as a cancer doc to care lung cancer patients at MD Anderson and um, then uh, went to the Food and Drug Administration where Deb and I served in the Coronavirus Task Force and served as commissioner. Um, and now I'm a CEO partner at uh, Harbinger Health, which is in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Nice to be here. Came in a month before COVID hit. I came yeah. in a month before, it's exactly. With no <laughs> government experience before. Yeah. In, in your nice little good. strategic plan of all the things strategic, you were gonna do. Right. Yeah. COVID was not on that list, so yeah. <laughs> um, well, great, so um, our topic today is the science and politics of vaccines. So uh, um, not trying to necessarily be controversial on it, but it's obviously turned into a super controversial topic. But I wanna start first with um, maybe just setting up some, 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 some basics. Um, I think a lot of us, when we think vaccines, I mean, we think of the traditional you know, measles, mumps, rubella, both in terms of the types of disease we're trying to prevent and also the technologies um, that we use to, to go after that. Um, Debbie, you and I, you know, we've talked a little bit about, there's a lot of nuance in there. You know, so maybe talk about you know, what was so different, both about the, the technology we used and the type of disease that are going after that may have led to some of the, the challenges in communication? Well, you know, when we develop vaccines, we, do, we follow nature. So if you, I'm looking at the audience, there may be a couple people in here who actually got measles, mumps, rubella, or chicken pox. I see you, <laughs> I'm one of those. We knew if you got those, you were basically protected for life. Um, so that if you got it once, you didn't get it again. And so vaccines were designed to mimic natural infection. And we've done really well with vaccine generation where the roadmap for natural infection is long-term protection. And when we talk about herd immunity, it didn't matter whether you had the vaccine or you got the natural infection, you were protected for a long period of time decades and decades. Same thing with the smallpox vaccine. And some of you who had gotten the smallpox vaccine were protected from monkeypox. So some of these vaccines and that immune response can be recalled decades later. Well, all of the vaccines, not just the messenger RNA vaccines, all the vaccines were made against the spike protein for COVID. So as I said to Steve once, if one works, they all work. So this isn't gonna be a question of nuance. It's just, they're all expressing the same antigen. But it was clear, and I think clear to many of you in the audience, by the summer of 2020, we started to see already reinfection. 
um, with natural infection. And so once you start to see reinfection with natural infection, you know that your vaccine is probably not gonna have durable protection against infection. And so it was only studied to protect against severe disease. And there are a few vaccines that we do for only protection against severe disease, but most of our vaccines produce protection against mild, asymptomatic, and, and long-term protection. And that's why you hear about herd immunity. We have never mandated a vaccine mm -hmm. um, that only protects against severe disease and not yeah. infection. So Steve, as, you know, when you guys were at the FDA then, you had an entire new class of technology that had never really been applied before. And how did you guys think of that in the context of, um, one, you know, the, again, targeting the spike protein and the technologies you could do that, and, and the need to get something out there fast and the safety of that? I mean, how, how did you guys get comfortable with mRNA vaccines so quickly? Or some would argue too slow. So. <laughs> yeah, that's the, that's the mix for the FDA. So we, we knew from the beginning, and I remember a conversation with Peter Marks in March of 2020 that vaccines were kind of going to be our way out of this. And Deb's right. We, from the beginning, said our healthcare systems being overrun by sick people, you know, that, that was happening. People were dying on ventilators, we're running out of ventilators for God's sake, we're running out of some meds we need for people on ventilators. We really, our first priority was how do we prevent severe disease? How do we prevent people from dying? So really the studies were designed for that and that was deliberate from the beginning. But there's all these different platforms for, for vaccines and Deb remembers several meetings where we talked about this and we wanted to have as many shots on goal as, as possible. But what wasn't known is that mRNA vaccines in humans had been administered previously, and the FDA had reviews of those data. So it wasn't completely unknown, although relatively new technology. That, that I think, is important to know. At the end of the day, what the FDA does and is always looks at the risks and benefits. And whether that's a, a, what's called a BLA or outright approval of a vaccine or an EUA, the whole point of this is what, what are the risks associated with it, as we know, and what are the benefits? In this particular instance, um, it wasn't that difficult because three, 5,000 people were dying a week in the United States. And so the efficacy side of it, if we could get to a certain level of efficacy, and we defined it as 50%, really had to be balanced with the, the side effects. And that, that was the tougher part of the call. And Deb remembers all the conversations, but at the bottom line is that instead of waiting the six months... Of the and this is where things got off track. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> instead of waiting six months after the completion of a study uh, to look at all the toxicities, we went back and said, if you look at all the vaccines that FDA has approved, where is 95, 96, whatever percent of the toxicity seen? Knowing that no matter how long you wait, you're never going to see every specific toxicity. And so we came up with the two months median time after the, 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 uh, the completion of the study. So the bottom line there is it, it, it's always going to be about that. And when you have that many people dying and you save 100,000 Americans per month, the math, and it, it isn't a math problem, it's a people-human being problem. But when you think about that versus what were the potential risks, that was a, a pretty yeah. straightforward decision for us. And we tried to be as transparent as possible. And again, that's, I think, from an organizational, from a societal level, community benefit, you guys were thinking of that. But Kristen, I mean, individuals, you, you, as a behavioral scientist, you think about that individual decision where individuals are weighing the risks and benefits of these things. I mean, how do you think that, that was impacted by the fact that these were vaccines that were going to prevent 
you know, maybe severe disease, but maybe not prevent infection. I mean, how, how do you think that started to creep into people's risk balance reward on that? Yeah, actually, sorry, my voice, guys, but um, so I actually want to go back to the measles thing because mm -hmm. I think that's a really interesting uh, case study of, of how they got adopted. It took about 15 years for measles vaccines to go from like introduction to 90% and a ton of mass media. So like basically Dear Abby they did, they did R2-D2, like just mass like marketing of these things. Multiple mandates, changing, like trying to get schools to, to do the mandate, couldn't do it, did it again. Uh, and so, you know, this, this is a work in progress. So whether it's about kind of eradicating something or just preventing severe disease, like we have a history of it being difficult. And so if we want it to get to like 90%, you know, the mandates for the, at least measles were kind of the way that it had to go. Um, even though, by the way, measles was like not that bad. I mean, relative, right? So like less kids died from measles than are dying from COVID. So you can make arguments either way about like, should it be, you know, how, at what level are we, we talking mm. about behavior change? But there's a lot of nuance there, right? I mean, you, you, you know, again, we have the hindsight. Now we all grew up with our, you know, MMR vaccines, but you know, now we have, you know. He's again, younger. <laughs> on the cusp yeah we were those first generations because of dear abby we got ours but um but yeah but 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 again again this was was different i mean again you had new technology that the public wasn't really aware of you had a you know a new you know virus which people were trying to compare and contrast to the flu we're not mandating flu vaccines so i mean you know how as behavioral scientists do you think about influencing some of that decision-making? And, and how do individuals think about it? Whereas, you know, Steve and, and, and Debbie are thinking about it from how do we save, you know, American society? How does the individual think about that? And, yeah. and, and that crosses a super interesting mix. So, so the majority of people are kind of pro, are, are willing to get a vaccine. So we're talking about a small percentage. And why are people willing to do something like this? Number one, it's just a, the number one thing for vaccines is just a doctor recommends it and you follow the doctor's orders. And that's kind of a general, like, we have an authority bias. So for the majority of people, there isn't actually a hesitancy. We have, we think about things, we do things that are easy. So mobile clinics, big deal. If you put a mobile clinic in there, more people will get a vaccine. If your doctor recommends it, more people will get a vaccine. For the people who are hesitant, then it's a different story where we say, like, how do we think about behavior change for these folks? And a lot of it's norms. You know, it's looking around and seeing what other people are doing. If you go to different states, you see different uptake. Uh, and so some of that is a general, you know, over time, things will change. Um, one thing that was tough, right, so in, in the measles case, what happened is that they basically said, look, it is deadly. They actually totally changed messaging from it doesn't matter to it's going to kill you. Uh, and so at some level, you know, what COVID is, is you don't see that. You don't see your friends dying when they get it. And so I think for some level of, you know, it's very difficult in this battle where you say, I'm scared of the vaccine. I don't see people dying. The vaccine we're questioning. And now why should I get the vaccine? Yeah. Debbie, you talk a lot about our communication on that. And you know, how the government thought about communicating on some of the risks, and Steve, you talked about that as well, too. I mean, where, where do you think the government did well, and then where did they hurt themselves? And Yeah, well, I mean, I mean you can I mean, hear where people were talking. Risk-benefit ratios and science and data should line up with policy. So here we're talking about a vaccine that was only studied, only studied for symptomatic disease. We did not test anyone anyone in any of the protocols proactively for the virus. Yet we knew that most people under 35 were asymptomatic. And so 
these studies only prove severe disease and hospitalization and death. But that's where we got into trouble. Because if you believe that, and you were following the science and the data, the people who were dying the most should have been first eligible for the vaccine. So this is when you start losing the community. Because when you say to people, well, this vaccine has only been studied against severe disease, hospitalization, and death, and that's what it's going to do, and then you give it first to people in their 20s that just happen to work in the hospital and not to the 95-year-olds in nursing homes, then you're already not bringing science and public policy together. And I think that's when you start to lose community, and that's when you start to get people questioning. But also picking up, what, listen to what she said, they talk to their doctor. So for the last 20 years, we've been tracking that there's no doctors in rural America anymore. None. I flew into here. I looked around. There's no primary care out there 20 miles away. There's hardly any in Austin. I mean, I don't know where it is. I only saw one clinic. I like to know what's going on in the community, so I walked your community. I'm like, whoa, there's no clinics. We're very independent in Austin, Texas. <laughs> but so people, we're... if you're going to say, we said three things to the American people. We said, talk to your primary care doctor or go to CVS or Walgreens. Have you been out to rural America? There is no CVS or Walgreens. So then you lose another set of the public. By not knowing how the majority of people who are providing our food and energy live, they're providing our food and energy. I realize it's only 15 to 20% of Americans, but they're kind of an important part because that's where your protein sources and grain sources and energy sources are coming from. And when you don't bring them to the table and say, we recognize, we see you, we hear you, we know you're not there, so we're going to put in the special ability to educate and be there and answer your questions and see you and listen and listen to your concerns, and then we're going to offer vaccines. We didn't do that. So we had this disconnect between what the vaccine could do, how it was rolled out, and how we reached people in the reality of their everyday lives, which I learned from working overseas. You have to get into the community, and all communities are not alike. And I think we'd like to pretend that America is some homogenous group that's going to move as a giant group and accept policies as they come down. So I do think there is, so there's very two things to pull out there. One, um, kind of across um, the world, when rural adoption was slow, and a lot of that is just like distance. So it's Access. like really easy to go somewhere. We do things that are easy, and when it's not easy, we don't do it. And so I do think some of the it has been like maybe over in, intellectualized in this way of saying they don't want it, but it actually could be exactly it's just too far. they couldn't get it. They just went too far. Uh, and so there, there's a level of like assuming that we need to have a conversation. There's actually a nice study I found um, that talked did like 30 peds clinics in North Carolina, and it was like, look, a doctor's going to just tell you get a vaccine. This is HPV or they're gonna have a conversation with you. And the researchers were like, it's definitely the conversation. We think if you have a conversation, you'll ha get them to answer questions and then they'll make the recommendation at the end versus making just a straight recommendation. And the conversation backfired. 
decreased uh, adoption by 5%. Mm, wow. It is a general, like we want to believe that yes, having the conversation is good and yet sometimes it's just authority bias or these kind of like the messenger, the messenger matters. Well, that seems to have cut both ways during COVID, right? I mean, there was a group of people that were you know, hesitant against the vaccine because the government was telling them to do that. And so, you know, I don't know, how do you think about that? Steve, I mean, you guys probably were the, bearing the brunt of this at the agency. Yeah, I, so the way I'd start with this is that... Yeah, why did you recommend that healthcare workers get vaccines before the elderly and the nursing homes? I think, How did that happen? I think we know that's <laughs> That actually did it happen. It was. <laughs> <laughs> For the record. Um, <laughs> Not by the FDA. Not by the FDA, right. Yeah. It was our other public health agency. It was, for sure. So, so I was giving I, you an opportunity. Well, I, yeah, I was not going to CDC that. didn't return our calls, by the way. Really? So, sorry. <laughs> so we, let's start with the fact that it was unprecedented innovation that led to a vaccine in 11 months. And from tests and treatment. Identification of the virus sequence to, to an AUA for vaccine. So let's put it out there that we have a private sector that responded. We had the American people who responded. We had people willing to be on the clinical trial, and we, we got there. And other countries did too, but this was a pretty remarkable effort. The flip side of that is that the speed, and we always used to hear you're cutting corners at the agency <laughs> with the clinical trial, which is really just sort of speak for you're not doing it the right way and you're going to hurt people, which totally understand. We did a lot of um, sessions with organized groups from really um, underrepresented communities as we led up to the, to the vaccine authorization to try to say, hey, we need your help. We need your help. And, and Deb knows this because Deb was on the front lines of, of these communities, the rural, et cetera. They have been left behind. They felt ignored. And I'll exactly. never forget this conversation where I said, we need your help. We need to have a conversation uh, because we need people to get the vaccine. And here's what we're doing, et cetera, et cetera. And the folks said to me, you know, you always come to us when you need us, but where were you five to seven years ago? And I was like, you know what, you're absolutely right about that. That is so true. And so one of the things we have to think about is let's do that now. Let's really push innovation. We know we can do it. The FDA can respond, but let's do that now and have conversations now and build trust because we totally lost trust during a time we got a vaccine over 11 months. We had a presidential election. We had crazy town and normalized deviancy in Washington, D.C., and it continues to this day. And it's a real problem for trying to get, build trust and, and try to create the kind of public health institutions we want. So at the end of the day, right, I mean, to make a vaccine effective, to get the herd immunity on severe disease, even though we're not curing it, people need to take it. So, I mean, as you guys are thinking from a policy perspective, how do we maximize the number of people that are taking a vaccine? Did you have behavioral scientists involved in thinking through that conversation? And well, yeah, so, yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's all your fault. So this is, no, this is a point, this is a critical point, because this is, you know, we're still in the ditch today, and I, I'm telling you, we're no more prepared today than we were three years which ago. Which is shocking to hear you guys say No that, more is, prepared. Is, and this I mean, is because, well, yeah. because for, 20 years, we've measured vaccine hesitancy. Mm -hmm. CDC has logged it, published MMWR after MMWR. We did nothing to respond to the data. And so I think it was because epidemiologists were doing it rather than behavioral scientists, and there were no solutions mm -hmm. created that could figure out what is the problem. And then we would have seen it's primary health care and access and how far they had to drive to get to a pharmacy. But we measured it, we never acted. And there's a difference between pandemic preparedness 
and actually responding. And I think we did, a, we spent billions preparing for a pandemic. I mean, we all have to admit that did not work well for us. <laughs> it did not work well for us. And we're back to that same place of spending billions preparing rather than looking where the response gaps were and who we need to bring to the table. So in PEPFAR, we have lots of behavioral scientists. That's, that's your tax dollars ending AIDS around the world, and we're doing great at it. Um, so you did a great job. You gave us money, but you got to translate that into action. We have behavioral scientists that are in the community, age segmented, sex segmented, and really give us the drivers that we need to be successful. I'll just two-minute side channel on this. Men. All right, let's be clear, men, there's a lot in the audience, are not good with preventive medicine. <laughs> you know, if you break something. I don't know what you're saying. <laughs> if you break something, you will go to the emergency room. But short of that, it's a little difficult. So we had a lot of women in treatment. And then we did all the analysis. And you've got to know, people get reassured by who they're seeing. You've got to know who you're not seeing. And so we did an analysis, we did a complete community survey in 15 countries and found out we were missing about 75 to 80% of the men. So then I went to talk to the men and I said, what is the problem? And as a physician, when they say, well, we think we don't want to go to women physicians or women nurses because we think you're gossiping about us. My immediate thought is, Hell no. <laughs> We're not talking about you guys. But I had to step back and say, this is their perception. That's what matters, is the community perception. So we got the private sector to come in and help us and say, how do we get the message to men? Well, apparently men, I raised two daughters, so I didn't know this. Men only trust one person in their lives. It's not their spouses. It's not their children. It's their moms. And I knew where the moms were. <laughs> The moms were in church on Sunday, so I could get into the churches and say, here are self-tests. Take them home to your son. We want him to thrive. You want him to thrive. Get him into the clinic if he's positive. Here's what a positive looks like. Do it at home. Protect your sons. Two million new people on treatment. We, we learned another hack, um, grandkids. Uh, yes. Grandchildren well, were we used that to too. Yeah. But I mean, this was overseas. So that's, I mean, they're behavioral scientists and marketers that understand human behaviors are, are part of the solution, so yet we don't bring them to the table. Had they called you, yeah. I'm sorry they didn't, but had, <laughs> had they called you, um, would you have recommended a vaccine mandate? It's a good question. I think the question is, like, we don't have historically evidence that we could get to 90% without a mandate. So we just, do you guys, so I think there's a question of, like, how far could we get without one, and how far are we comfortable getting without one? So I think if we want to get to 90%, I would be skeptical to say I couldn't. I think we'd have to get to something that's tied to something real, so school. But you know, we get to other preventive measures to 90% when like, we talk to people. Like, So in the, in the HIV AIDS community in the 80s, when we only had prevention, there was, I mean, the rates dropped dramatically because the community took on prevention at a very pretty high level. Yeah. I mean, right and now even the, PrEP today is at a very high level. None of that is mandated. Yeah, but pre, I mean, PrEP has come a long way, right? Because it, it wasn't, it's a medicine that you have to take exceptionally adherent for, it doesn't work. And so there is, now we've gotten to a high In women, not men. Huh? Okay. Men can take it in a more. Okay, got it. <laughs> Driven way. So most, I would say, I would say maybe outside of a couple examples, like flu is fifty percent, HPV yeah. is fifty-eight percent. Like we're not getting 
you know, as I study behavior more and more pessimistic about people's ability to take their priorities of long-term outcomes into account on a daily basis. It's not because you don't really want to. So I'm not actually blaming hesitancy. It's just like, it's difficult. Like, actually, one of the coolest things that's happening in health right now is like Walmart's putting blood pressure machines in stores. It's like just making it easier for people to do a thing that helps them. So I would say until we, you know, if we were, one strategy would be like uh, everywhere, not just Walgreens, just employers have vaccines, everyone has vaccines, then I'd say maybe we don't need a mandate. Like that would kind of be the like, if you we had almost that, you know, easy universal yeah, access. Exactly. It just had to be everywhere and then no mandate. But if it's not everywhere, then people are just not going to take the priority about their long-term health. We're very good at watching Netflix at night. We're not good. You know, <laughs> really, we all try to like. But then shouldn't you mandate it for the people that the vaccine was designed for? Because... You know, when you do a mandate, you've got to do a very detailed risk-benefit ratio of all the potential complications and the potential risk to having severe disease. 100%. Um, because you can't get to ninety yeah. percent then. But if we don't want to get to ninety, or we want to get to ninety percent in the population, yes. then. But if you don't want to get to ninety percent overall, then yes, for sure. Because you the... can mandate it through Medicare. I mean, there's ways yeah, to great. mandate um, specific vaccines. Yeah, I, and I think your point, Kristen, is really good. What what was our goal? What yeah. what what? And now, what's our goal? What do we want to achieve? And and I, I, I think you're right. If a mandate could help us get there, mm-hmm. if I think back to 2020 in the political environment and the social environment of the country. My God, we argued about masks, for God's sake. I mean, we still are. Apparently. No, no, apparently we are right. But then you sort of, <laughs> then you move to vaccines, which is a whole nother level. And my point is, I'm not sure. I think the pushback against mandates probably would have impeded us substantially and maybe caused, you know, even more discord. But what was the conversation internally as you guys were thinking about policy? I mean, was there even a debate or was it? There was no, I mean, we never debated having mandates because we wanted to get it to the highest highest risk risk people. people. Mm -hmm. And we had, we finally had gotten governors. It was very interesting because this split almost along political lines. There were governors who were like, well, CDC said to give it to the healthcare worker first, and the other, go- and there was another set of governors who were very vocal and said, we're doing it in a tiered age group. So if you're a healthcare worker and you're over 55, you get it. If you're a, a population in West Virginia and you're over 65, you're going to get it. So it made sense to the community. So I think what's happened and what has always worried me about mandating this vaccine. The nuance of difference between infection and severe disease, people are now beginning to question measles, mumps, and rubella, DPT, because they're thinking, well, you mandated those, and this one didn't protect against infection. Did they not protect against infection? And so I think you start to unravel fundamental immunology by mixing and matching things that are, are not closely related at all, and it causes people then to question all vaccines. And I think that's the, always the downside when you try to get a quick fix versus a public health deliberative measure of seeing who you're getting to, who's still the gap, and finding the solution well, it's for super the, gap, complicated. the gap, the gap, the gap. it's super complicated science. I mean, yeah, we do biotech venture investing, so we like to think we're generally, but it, it's very, very complicated. And so, like, you know, a lot of people in my network were like, well, I want to do my own research. Well, it's like, wow. Like, that's going to be really, really hard because this is really complicated stuff. So, I mean, Kristen, how do you think about that in terms of, you know, people who want to be data-driven on that, 
and don't necessarily trust the institutions that we've set up over, over a long time to do it. So how do you start to break into that? Yeah, I would say I'm, I'm, uh, I'm very skeptical that, that we should take this idea and then transform it. So I think that's correct. People have the desire to do their mm -hmm. own research, but then transform it into a policy idea. So, so there was a nice study done in Ireland, like 8,000 folks kind of in the middle of like, don't uh, hang out with lots of people, don't go outside, do social distancing, like all the recommendations were, were being given. And they said, look, we're gonna give you different scenarios and you tell us what is more risky or less risky. And they did experts, they did like 60 experts, and then they did just like you know these 8,000 folks. And what ended up happening is that once you put more than two to three variables together, people get confused. <laughs> and they're only prioritizing Sorry. one of the variables, and it turned out the one variable is like how many people to be with. But they kind of got confused of like, oh, if, if I'm with like 14 people inside for an hour, is that they said that was a little bit better than 100 people outside for 15 minutes. <laughs> it's like, ah, that's probably not. And there was no research to support either policy, and it's right? Like, yeah. In general, the experts had more of a strong, and they basically said a multiplier effect where if you have two scary things together, it's more risk. And um, everyone else said two scary things together, and it's less risk. Uh, and so we're not good at assessing risk in general, what, when you get things that are complicated. So I would be hesitant about taking kind of a nuanced or like we need to have people do their own research and give everything to them because we're just not, and that's normal, right? We have tons of other things going on in our lives. Like we've got all this other things to pay attention to. The idea that we could give the appropriate amount of attention to one thing is like for a small percentage of people, most of us have kids, we have work, we have other things. I think it would help though if people showed their work. I think FDA right. did a, magnificent job of making everything open and showing the data that supported their decision making. I think that's really critical because they can download the data, they can do their own research, they can look at what they, it was completely transparent. When it goes into a black box and all of a sudden CDC will say, okay, you don't need to wear a mask anymore if you're vaccinated, creating the implication that was gonna protect against infection or saying, Oh, if you have COVID after five days, you can go, it's, it's okay, you go back to work, um, don't worry about it. And we know that antigen tests are positive till day 11 and you're spreading virus. So you need to show your work. And I think that builds trust. And I think if every time CDC came out with a policy recommendation, they showed the work behind it, I think for the people who wanted to do their own research, mm -hmm. they could have that discussion then. And Dennis, part of this, sorry, Kristen, please. So I definitely agree that that would build trust. I think the correlation, we don't yet have empirical results that that type of thing builds vaccination. Oh, so no, we that, don't, that but we do know it, it, it did help, I think, with how the FDA is perceived as trustworthy. Yeah, and I, that translation is actually the most important thing, Kristen, yeah. so get it. Um, I, I, what I was going to say was the transparency does two things. One is it shows that there's a process outside experts are looking you're asking questions and trying to critically look at the data. But the other part of this that I think is so true, and it's true of being a doctor, it's as important to say when you have gaps in your knowledge and you don't know something, but here's why I'm recommending, as it is to say, I have definitive proof that this is the case. I, I agree, and so there's research on like physicians. If physicians appear confident, they're more like people are more likely to follow the recommendation. If they appear not confident, like I'm weighing the pros and cons, and this is what I'm going with given all the evidence, people are less likely to follow the recommendation. So I, I think we just have to be like more, we have to figure out what's, if you tell people all these things, does this drive increased vaccination? And if it doesn't, how do we mitigate that? Or like, is that, are we okay with that? And, and maybe that we are okay with some level of like, 
I think it's interesting yeah. that when you cite studies, yeah. a lot of them are not done here. <laughs> so, no, that with the this, position one was. No, but I mean, oh. this, I, about the current situation, oh, right. a lot of that data is coming from elsewhere. That should be really concerning to all of us, mm -hmm. that we don't have systems in place to ask and answer questions that are critical to our understanding about healthcare for okay. individuals and communities. That scares me, and that's why I say we're still not prepared today. Yeah. I mean, we relied on Israel's data, thank goodness they collected them, to decide when people should need another boost. Because we couldn't collect the data in the United States of America, who knows how to do CAR T cells for your <laughs> cancer treatment. We can't collect the data. Wow. I mean, it, it's, I have better data on HIV in Africa than I have on COVID in the United States. And just as an example, <clears throat> Deb realized this. She hired, was it medical students? I forget who you hired. <laughs> but literally to call every hospital in the United States to collect data. We didn't have the systems in place to do that. And in FDA, when we had shortages of masks and you know, swabs, et cetera, we were calling China, India, et cetera, in the middle of the night to find out you know, where supplies were. So this knowledge and information and platform sort of data gap is huge. And we spend trillions of dollars, and we still don't have it in place. So the great news is now we have it. So for future pandemics, we don't have it. We, we don't have it. Yeah, thanks, Dennis. Yeah. We, <laughs> We, we don't. We, well, you can see we don't have the behavioral data. We don't know what's driving hesitancy. We assume it's access. I think access plays a, a big role. Um, I also think we don't go to places that people go to, like Walmart or schools where they pick up and drop off kids or the community center. So, you know, we're just not adapting. And I think the. the I'll just say this, because it has nothing to do with vaccines, but it has to do with why we're in such a ditch. We have chosen not to diagnose any viral diseases in this country except for HIV and hepatitis. So when you go to the doctor, he'll say, I think you have flu. And you accept that. <laughs> Deb. Now, if he did that, <laughs> if he did that, when you came in and said, I think I have diabetes, and he goes, yeah, your symptoms are like diabetes. <laughs> I'm going to give you insulin. <laughs> That's what we've done with flu. That's what we've done with RSV. That's why we weren't prepared for COVID. So if we were diagnosing every viral disease today and not just be worried about AMR, bacterial resistance, but the, and take money out of the zoonotic approach and put it into diagnosing humans with what they have, then we would have better therapeutics for RSV because they would know when children have it. We'd have better therapeutics for adenovirus. We'd have better COVID therapeutics. We're down to one. That should make all of you very nervous. We have no monoclonal antibodies. If I was a vulnerable human being right now and an immunodeficient, I would be panicked out of my mind because there's no monoclonal antibodies for you anymore. So we have less than we had a year ago. So this is what I'm talking about. We should not accept bad science. And we should force our systems to actually diagnose what diseases we have. You would never accept it for anything else. And you blindly go around and say, oh, I, you know, I have a respiratory thing. I'm, I'm taking halls. <laughs> <laughs> or some over-the-counter thing. What Deb just said is really important. And, and you think about the innovation that went during the first year after the pandemic. And, the importance of that to the country. We had therapeutics, we had monoclonal antibodies, et cetera, and how that seemed to taper off and how that's related to preparedness. 
it, and, and I think that is true about infectious diseases, but it's also true about the slower pandemics that we have, the diabetes, obesity, obesity yeah. et cetera, that if you think about it, if we didn't have those problems in the numbers that we did around the world, we wouldn't have the morbidity and mortality that we did have. And so I think a, a generalized approach, not just to infectious disease, but to some of these other, a preemptive strike for identification and treatment, that, that has to be part of this. That, actually, that's been, yeah, we, we, I really want to plan to talk about this, but I mean, from an investment and innovation standpoint, you know, as investors, you know, immunology has been a pretty challenging place to invest in because, I mean, these are events that you can't predict in the future when you're going to need them. People are hesitant to take the, you know, the, the, the treatments and such. And so, you know, from an investment angle, it's really challenging. I mean, Moderna was struggling in, until the pandemic came along, right? And now it's one of the more valuable, you know, biopharma companies out there. So, I mean, there's more dollars going into using immunotherapy techniques against cancer than there is actually against the immunotherapies. That's right. That's right. So, I, you know, I think it's a, yes. it, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a real yeah, challenge. Yeah, COVID last year killed twice as many people as breast cancer and lung cancer. Over 275,000 Americans. We act like that's fine. Yeah. They're grandparents. I'm sorry, it's not fine that 275,000 Americans died last year and that we have less. We have 30,000 Americans have died since January. If we continue to lose 10,000 a month, that's another 120,000 this year. And we're like, oh yeah, but you know, flu, 25,000. Bad season, maybe 40. We don't know because we don't actually test people. <laughs> So all these numbers are made up. If you go to the CDC website and you look at flu deaths, you'll get a number between like 15 and 40, of which the point prevalence is 25,000. There is no actual data to support that 25,000 because we're not diagnosing flu. And I'm hoping out of this, we start diagnosing respiratory diseases because then we'll be better ready and people will know what they have. So when you say I have a vaccine for RSV that will go, oh gosh, yes. My three-year-old had it last year. My two-year-old had it this year. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something about that. Instead, it's, it's just, well, it was one of those viruses. And Kristen, you were mentioning before, I mean, you know, one, authority, we tend to rely on authority a lot to drive some of these kind of fast-acting decision-making, but that didn't seem to work all the way we needed. I mean, would that, you think, lower the barriers for certain people if they were more comfortable, they were seeing these around, they had better data, do you think that would help um, in, in people's individual decision making? Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of the, the research, there's tons of kind of copy messaging to text you and try to get you to, to, to go and get a reminder. And, and really one of the bigger findings is like, it is the messenger. And we did have, and how do you get to people to have them even pay attention? So if you're in rural, you may not be paying attention as much to national TV. You may be paying attention to other sources. And so I would much more go towards like we need the messenger and this is the mothers and this is the churches and <laughs> that should kind of uh, be the investment. What's well, kind of interesting, so Steve, I mean, you, you guys are talking about how you were... State fairs. State fairs. <laughs> well, you, you guys are talking about from a policy perspective, we are trying to drive science to drive individual decision making and to, to blunt the disease. But I mean, the topic of this is the politics of it. I mean, you mentioned, you know, governors were dictating policy, you know, to some extent based on their political affiliation. I mean, you know, how, how much of the battle did you feel you were battling not just the individuals and the science of the decision making and this diffuse political system on both sides um, as you're trying to make good policy and save the human race? I mean, I, I think a lot, uh, you know, the environment, I mean, presidential election year and already <laughs> divided. You know, Half the people country. think you delayed it to impact it. Half the people think you accelerated it. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> as you know, reported in the press, you know, we at the FDA delayed it to do this beyond a certain November 4th that year. And 
There were people who said they wouldn't take it if it was authorized before that date. And so you had this very toxic brew. On uh, both sides. On both sides of things that led to a decrease in confidence and lack of trust. And that was preceded by masks. And whether we should, I, I would go on, we all went on talk radio around the country. And the conversation, even though we're in the middle of this pandemic, was always about masks and mask mandates. I mean, and you think about all these people dying every week. So it's, the, the point is, it perfused everything during that time. And um, what we really needed is what a doctor does during an emergency, which is, I don't care if I like you and you're the other doctor in the emergency <laughs> room and we're treating somebody. It's all about curing them and saving that patient. And so whether we like each other is irrelevant. So we need to share information, we need to move forward, and we need to communicate. And we don't have a political system or an environment that's set up to do that. So you didn't see that behind the scenes, people crossing the aisle? Really oh, we are. saw it. And uh, Deb and Bob and I would, <laughs> would meet in secret once or twice a week to actually... Sometimes five times a week times we needed psychotherapy. Yeah. <laughs> but the point is it, 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 was not, um, it was not like it should be across the entire spectrum. And you can see, I mean, I think... Um, so you have to do aggressive action when you have nothing. And so when we were confronted, and we had done no preparation in January and February to confront this virus, people in the United States were talking about containment and the 15 people. Um, and it wasn't until the end of February that even the agencies said anything that this could be really bad. In the meantime, I'm meeting with all the African diplomats in January and saying, get ready, this is really going to be terrible. Use my money, use my healthcare network, use our laboratories, and get ready for this, because this is going to be horrible. The tsunami has already left China. It's headed around the world. So I mean, I think we have this arrogance in the United States that somehow our technology will save us. And it did. I mean, we got tests, we got therapeutics, we got vaccines. But humans are humans. And so unless you've done the fundamental understanding, which we could have done in March and April yeah. about vaccines, because we knew they were coming. Yeah, actually, we, we tried to like beg California to have us help them. And it, but at that point, they were too busy basically managing hospitals. Yeah. And so it was like no one had any bandwidth to think about vaccines. Um, and we're like, well, it's going to be a shit show. <laughs> and, but they had no, and to their credit, they were overwhelmed with the current, yeah. uh, the current environment. And so I'm curious, really so the, the timeline, I mean, we were talking about this, Steve, a couple weeks ago, just, um, you know, we all have our individual, as part of the public, you know, when we started to become more and more aware of it, and it was actually South By, you know, I think for a lot of us in Austin, when South By had to cancel, I mean, I think everybody was like, wow, this is like real. And then we went into lockdown like that week. From y'all see, you guys were seeing all the early information. What was it? What, was there a single piece of information where you guys were just like, hey? So we, at the agency, it was late January when we stood up our emergency response. Not because we knew what Deb knew, but just because of reports that we were hearing around the, the, the world. But there, and, and what were some of the reports that, that escalated this Just, about? you know, reports out of China, you know, um, some other parts the of the world. The social media yeah. reports. Yeah. Yeah. Really, more than, than anything else. But I'll never forget, it was February. I just joined the task force. Deb was introduced. And we're right before a meeting, and Deb brings out the sheet of paper. And this is Deb collecting. You might not know what you could. You never went to sleep. She'd come in, and she goes, Steve, look at this. And she shows this really red hot map of Piemonte in northern Italy. And she goes, look at this, all the cases here. And, and I said, yeah. And she goes, it's over. It's already here. It is you know, we're going to, we're just delayed, but it is already here in this country. And, and then it was just about choice. just preventing it. So it, it did get to 10 major metros 
but it could have gotten to 25. Yeah. And yep. I think America doesn't get credit for acting in that March and April moment because what Americans did in March and April prevented the virus from taking over Houston, Miami, Dallas, Los Angeles, San Francisco. I mean, it, Miami. Um, if those metros had gone down, we had taken every healthcare provider in this country and they were on the north, they were in the northeast. Um, and, and everything that we had, every mask, every gown, every glove, every ventilator was saving New Jersey, Detroit, Chicago, Baltimore, Philadelphia. We had no bandwidth for anybody else. And that's why in that moment you have to do something catastrophic. But then it became everything's a lockdown. Everything is not a lockdown. Asking people to get tested is not a lockdown. <laughs> I'm sorry. Asking you to wear a mask indoors when there's a surge in your community is not a freaking lockdown. Well, it welding is them not. in their apartment complexes like China did, it's that's more of a lockdown. Yeah. A lockdown, but I, I want to say this because there was a lot of collegiality around the globe. Um, but this is another piece that hasn't been fixed. I knew people because I had worked in global health. And it was those people, the people who in Italy who were ministers of health, in Spain, in France, in South Korea, who every night sent me their data in the midst of their own crisis so I could get up and say to Americans, this is killing people over 80, over 65, here are the comorbidities. That all came, not from this country, because we didn't have, I got the first report, 85% were missing demographics. <laughs> Male, female, race, ethnicity, all gone. Age, missing. That all came from our colleagues around the globe. And I think that did a lot to save Americans because that was the yep. data. I had used no American data Until you created. to get the yeah. 15 and 30 days slow the spread because we didn't have it. We could see hospitals being overwhelmed, but short of calling them, they weren't, couldn't provide the data. So I think that's another piece of this, that we have to learn how to work as a global community because all, we had spent billions saying that the pandemic would happen over here somewhere. It would never get to here because you know we're doing so great in Africa and Asia that it wouldn't get here. So there was no coalition of high-income countries. There weren't natural relationships already established with Europe that we were reporting data back and forth. And we have to be able to do that if we're going to be ready for the next pandemic. Because every new variant almost has come from Europe to here four weeks later. So it's very predictable. But we have to set those systems but, but up. Even, I mean, Yes, I mean, we, one, we could be better prepared, and two, data could really help, and, and three, technology has shown that we can, you know, in 11 minutes we can really do it, but we haven't really tackled the problem how we're going to convince people to trust us and actually, you know, you know use these, these new technologies to do that. So I'm thinking about, you know, you know maybe there's the, the, the technology and the data response we do, but what's the behavioral thing we need to fix? And I don't know, Chris, are you, are you like, you know, optimistic about the future, or are you pessimistic about it in terms of our individual decision-making? regards to these complex issues? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I'm, I'm probably 
I'm generally pessimistic about human behavior, I think. <laughs> and, and, and you're an expert. I think, yeah, no, I, I mean, I think in general, like, it's the easiest thing for us to do is the thing we did yesterday, and the thing we did yesterday is the easiest thing the day before. And so we're mostly living in the status quo. We're doing the same thing every day. And so behavior changes is fairly difficult. Um, I do, you know, the, the case that kind of gives me a little bit of hope, which is weird, is that uh, the Brazilian, uh, you know, they've got 90% yeah. vaccinated. And it's it, despite kind of having a, a leader that really, really went to strong lengths to make that not happen, um, and a lot of it is feeling that it's a right, your right to get vaccinated. You know, there's this like famous story about like drug dealers going with guns to like clinics to be, give me my vaccine, <laughs> just give it to me. So that helped. And, and, but, but the idea that you deserve it, and so I think there's a, my hope is maybe like as Americans, we're like we deserve this vaccine, you know, and it's a different relationship. It's not, it's you, you think you deserve the free healthcare, and we do give free healthcare to a lot of populations in the U.S., but this is kind of the first time we gave free healthcare to everyone, which is like testing and vaccines. And so it could be that there is a slow norm change happening by which we now think this is our right as Americans to get, when a pandemic happens, to get this access. Um, and then we can demand more access. And, and I think you know, behavior change is really about making things easy. We do the thing that's in the path of least resistance. And so we have to have the systems and the infrastructure set up the next time it comes around to make it easy for people to do the thing. And hopefully, we'll start demanding it. You know, it's, now our, it's now our right. Yeah. Great. So we've got about 10 minutes. So if people do want to ask questions, we'll um, allow a couple questions. Oh, um, we have somebody at the mic. Um, if you don't mind going to the mic, that would actually, then the entire room can hear you. So uh, please. Oh, try it now. Hello, hello. Oh, yay. <laughs> Great. Oh, it's a little low. Uh, thank you, first of all, for your life's uh, work to, to save lives. Um, um, so my question is a um, behavioral science related question, just as some context. So I worked um, with Governor Polis as a chief communication strategist for the vaccine rollout in the state of Colorado. Um, and we heard from hundreds of Coloradans that they wanted um, to do their own research to which I sit there and think like, what? I work in this stuff every day and I don't even know what I'm looking at half the time, <laughs> right? And you're just like a common person off the street. So I'm just sort of curious um, around your thoughts about like the efficacy of that, the, the sort of thinking that goes into people wanting to, you know, do their own research. And, or maybe and, making the data, you know, more consumable and easy well, to understand. Yeah, I, I, sh sure, I mean, we can try that. So all these things are empirical and You don't and sound testable. optimistic. <laughs> I think, you know, a lot of the hesitancy came from, like, the fear of short-term and long-term side effects. And, um, and then it, it, you look at who's the least trusted, I think in, uh, Gardner came out in like 2019, I think, like the least trusted is pharmaceuticals, no offense. Um, and so you have this like really low trust in no, pharmaceuticals. No, hold on, venture capitalists is worse than that. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> really low trust in pharmaceuticals. And then we say we made this vaccine really quickly. And by the way, there may be some side effects we don't know about. And so this level of kind of low trust already, and then maybe some uh, like not confidence in the operational um, you know, efficacy of it. I would say it would be more, the intervention I would do is not like exposing all the research, but getting people more operational transparency about the how, like how the thing was c come to yep. be versus the like science of it. 
And I think people want to feel comfortable in the process. A lot of fairness in life is just looking at the process and saying, do I trust the process? And so that would be my like post-intervention is process uh, transparency versus science transparency. Yeah. Great. And by the way, Governor Paulus did a great job. I, Deb sent us out in Colorado was one of my states. Really terrific work. Um, so as context, I'm an executive coach to tech CEOs. And as this was coming, there were a lot of decisions they were you know, needing to make. And I heard a lot about hesitancy, like vaccine hesitancy. And I was just wondering if you all had talked about or considered like the IgG class antibody tests to see, you know, instead of just saying like, hey, get your vaccine. Because um, on one hand, we heard that, well, even if you did get a vaccine, we couldn't test if you actually, like if it worked. But on the other hand, there is this IgG class antibody for SARS that nobody was talking about or getting that could prove that, but then it wasn't available. So could you talk to me about that? Yeah, so um, <laughs> there's a backstory here. There, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we like you thought South that, Africa did a great job with that. <laughs> we like you thought that um, that that was likely to be of benefit. Now, the science side of it is those tests tend to be more difficult or somewhat difficult to develop and commercialize, which is an obstacle. And the other part of this is that um, we, and this is where I think we fell down on the job at the agency, is we decided to have a lot of regulatory flexibility about this. And the market initially got flooded with IgG tests. And I would say 80% of them were really bad tests. And so at the end of the day, it was like bad information is worse than you know, you know, limited or no information, right? And so I, I think um, like with diagnostic tests for COVID, we could have done a better job of facilitating that. Now, the argument was made, whether you have IgG <coughs> or not, um, you know, we still had to take certain precautions because you could be reinfected, et cetera, et cetera. So the clinical utility of it, one questions, what do you do with the information? Now, I'll tell you, I went to LabCorp. I ordered antibody tests before and after every time I got my vaccine and boost. So, you know, I'm living proof of that. At least I knew that I got, a, you know, a boot, you know, an, an increase in my IgG. So I think doctors could have used that, but we weren't really prepared to actually implement that. But I think you raise a critical point because to today, today we don't know if people over 85, over 90, they weren't in the clinical trial. We don't even know if they have an immune response to the vaccine. So, you know, they're very- We don't even know the number that provides protection. Exactly. I mean, But, you know, thank goodness that other countries did roll out antibody assays in their population, and that was the way we knew how quickly protection waned against natural immunity because South Africa did such a great job with that. And we could have done it here. Yep. And thank you, Ambassador, for all of your commitment to behavioral <laughs> science you. as well. Hi, I'm Dr. Brittany Barreto. I'm a key opinion leader in women's health innovation. Moms are the most critical person to getting anyone vaccinated. So you keep saying they, and I'm like, why can't we just say women? Because it's who runs the world, okay? Exactly. It really is. Who's going to save the world is us. And um, 
just thank you. Uh, my question is, if we know that, how can we gain the trust of women when we know women have worse side effects from vaccines because we have a stronger immune response, we're also smaller in size, and vaccines are not dosed based on weight. Moreover, we have side effects like changes in menstrual cycle, which you know later we found is not, not long-term negative effects, but nevertheless, when you put out something into the world and all these women are like, where's my period? Or, oh my God, my flow is super heavy now. And we have to retrospectively look back at clinical trials and realize y'all didn't ask that question as a symptom. How can we improve our, our trust specifically with women? Well, for a long time, I mean, women were excluded from research. I mean, intentionally excluded if they were of childbearing age. So, I mean, this is, you're absolutely right. Um, and it has been corrected somewhat by NIH, but this gets into this behavioral science piece that should be part of all of our clinical trials. Well, well there's, there's probably, there probably is the infrastructure stuff, I would say probably is the first. We just should start, I think just recently we started having like female rats. So like we're get. I think the science is getting there. <laughs> <laughs> or like, you know, female rats to test on, right? Because like you're basically just- I wouldn't testing. laugh, y'all. This is serious. Our yeah. lives are on the line. Yeah. Um, and, but I, you know, in, in general, like a lot of, a lot of hesitancy and things are just norm based. So like, if, if you were to like say, Kristen, what would you do? I would get like some female celebrities to go out there and talk about their experience and relate and be somebody that you could look up to. So I mean, that's kind of what like. But get the science and data because I mean, we told young nurses to get this vaccine without knowing breastfeeding, pregnancy for almost six months. So, I mean, I can see why people are particularly skeptical. Yeah, and, 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 and maybe, so I'd say, um, if, and if we do want, like, I was pregnant actually during it, so like I should have, I had a decision to make, and it was like, uh, I'm definitely gonna do it, because the cost did outweigh, or the benefit did outweigh the cost. So I think ha having a strong recommendation is going to be helpful to get people to do something. If they have to weigh their pros and cons, you know, most of the time, and again, I keep going back to this, but like in the face of complexity, we do nothing. So if you're like, please right. think back, take your Sunday afternoon and just think about it. They're just, people are just gonna like not do anything. And so I think if we do want people to do it, and this is the question from like, if we want people to do it, then we have to prevent some recommendation. But we have to address the black box of women's health. I yeah, mean, yeah, you know that's that. That's what we have to do. Get yeah. women to trust the healthcare <laughs> yeah. system, have the healthcare system make us feel better, get us healthier, we'll be more inclined to take a vaccine. Thank you. Yep. A question for Dr. Berman. Um, I like to read about behavioral economics in the evenings, uh, in my free, t free time. <laughs> wow. my, my day job takes up a lot of space. I'm a breast cancer surgeon in Houston. And what I, what I find interesting, what the examples that you all talk about in the market seem harder to track in, in the clinic. And I want to ask a non-COVID question. We saw a patient for a breast pain there was nothing there. But what was so compelling was her history. Her mother had had cervical cancer at age 41. She had had cervical cancer at age 41. And she and her husband had five daughters. So the PA that I work with, we were, of course, very interested to find out. We, we assumed that you had all of them vaccinated for HPV. And she said, oh, absolutely not. Um, no, no, we are not interested in that. And I wanted to find out some insight. And there's a fine line between respecting the autonomy of the individual decision making. But I was so curious. We have such cancer phobia in general. And here's a vaccine that's it's anal, penile, cervical, and then head and neck. 
Uh, so I was so curious to find out, gosh, you guys should be the poster children for Gardasil. Yeah. And she said, nope, um, you would have to speak to my husband. I said, well, let's call him. Let's FaceTime him into the <laughs> nice. clinic. Um, and they said no. As a family, they had decided they would not vaccinate their daughters because the vaccine would be a, an endorsement from them as parents for um, promiscuity, promiscuity, pardon me. So um, I just wanted to, to pick your brain about uh, how, how has that, that vaccine, that's the one thing that we have to prevent cancer with the vaccine, how has that uptake been so surprisingly low? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And I think one of the core psychological barriers to uptake is this fear of kind of how you would be seen. Um, I, you know, some of these things are like, it feels like we should address that problem as the solution. I would say, I would, I would again go back to kind of general norms. And so the two interventions that have really worked for HIV is, is again, intervening with a physician. So in the physician, like Epic software, if you can get an active choice of have you done it or have you not recommended it, this active choice increases the likelihood that the physician, because they have to say decline, they have to actually say, I don't want, I'm not going to recommend yeah. it. And so that will increase them doing it. Um, there's another study around measuring them and like saying, if you get to 70%, you get some bonus and we'll reimburse you more. If you get to 85%, we'll reimburse you even more. And so these physicians then have an incentive to recommend and have that conversation with their patient. Um, and so generally, like, I, I think there's, there's tempting to, yeah. to address that specific concern, but from a mass level would think about the system and how we incentivize who they are having conversations with. Thank you so much. So guys, I think we're, we're um, going to be out of time for questions. Um, thought maybe we'd give everybody a chance to any parting thoughts, to, you know, maybe your, your optimism towards the, the next pandemic and um, you know, what, you know, what are the top, you know, couple things that, that you hope we learned from this that we'll apply next time and how are you feeling about that? Steve, do you mind? Yeah. So, um, uh, two observations for me that were most important. One is, um, the importance of us coming together uh, as a country and a globe to solve a really significant problem. Um, so that gives me great optimism because I think we really were able to push innovation forward. And the second thing is, there's a lot of people left behind, not just in this country, but in the world. And those folks need, we need to have conversations now with them, and we need to really find ways to bring them into the fold. And listen, I'm in the biotech industry, and talk about the poster child of, of unavailable expensive therapies that right here. So really important part of what we need to do. First, thank you for coming and listening. I really appreciate it. But critically, the things that we got in trouble with, not good human data, not good behavioral science, not good data in general, not definitive laboratory diagnosis, those are the things that are still not there today, like when we were talking about women's health. We can't just, I mean, we haven't even touched on tribal nations, but their life expectancy dropped to 65. 65, and we're not fixing it. Um, and they have access issues. So each of these issues are different, so the solutions need to be different. There can't just be, this is a solution for Texas. You need a solution for the Midlands. You need a solution for Dallas. You need a solution for specific populations. But we know how to do that. We're smart people. But we're just not doing it. Kristen. 
Yeah, um, I, I think in, in general, I'm optimistic about behavior change when it comes to like designing our environment. So if you guys work on any problem, behavior change, it's sometimes less about changing a specific attitude and more about redesigning our system and the environment to make it easy to do the thing you want to do. So I think we've just gotten a lot of lessons from this experience that I do think you know, we will redesign some of our systems, not all, probably we won't get there, but that, that it is like an interesting insight to change the systems. Well, great. Well, I want to thank you guys all for coming. Great. Thanks, everybody, for your attendance. Appreciate it.